Yes, please take one of those surveys and fill one out. I mentioned last week that we're going to take a few weeks off of Philemon. We have been grinding away, applying our collective brain into this little letter. And we're going to take a few weeks off. And I'm going to call the next series that we do Contemporary Issues. Contemporary Issues. So what I have on the surveys in the back is 20 different categories. Um, and out of those 20 categories, I want you to pick five of them and rate them on the back side of the survey in order of what you would most like to be taught and discussed. And I emphasize disgust. It is not going to just be me sitting up here talking about feminism for 45 minutes or whatever, you, whatever topics you end up picking. Uh, the idea that I have is I am going to try to present simply the as unbiased of information as I can, call it like the biblical text, this is what the Bible text says, this is what a couple science reports say, or I'm just gonna present information and then I'm gonna take a few minutes to present my viewpoint on it and then I'm gonna open it up to open season in a way. So I wanna give you a weak head start on whatever the topic is. That way we get to, to teach each other what we think about some of these things. Uh, we got a week to think about them, pray about them. So this is a way to get a little break from me didactically teaching Philemon and we will talk about some contemporary issues and maybe we'll surprise each other with some of the, with some of the ways that we, we think about it. So please fill out one of those surveys. I need them back by the end of this class because next week we are not gonna do Philemon, we are going to do whichever one gets the most points. And uh, so I have, a multi, I have three different point systems that I'm gonna be adding them up by, by weight of points. And yeah, so that's, that's, that's how, what we're going to do. Does that sound okay? We okay with that? Yeah, Marlene says yeah, that means that, that's all I need. <laughs> Please open your Bibles to the letter of Paul to Philemon. We are going to finish up verses 4 through 7. We are on pages 15 and 16 of your notes. These are the same notes that I've left out for a few weeks now. I am going to not allow myself to not finish these notes. We will finish 15 and 16. Philemon, verses 4 through 7, say this. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. All right, those are some nice, nice words from Paul there for his friend and brother. We are in Notes in Application, page 15. Uh, we talked last week pretty extensively about verse 4. The reason we talked extensively about it and what the content of what we spoke about was this idea of mediating for each other. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. 
And we went back to how this section correlates with the mediation part of the covenantal structure and how we as Christians are supposed to mediate for each other. And how do we mediate for each other? How do we do it? What's our means of mediation? Prayer. We pray for one another. We earnestly contend and bring up requests for one another. And in the worship service, that corresponds with the pastoral prayer. And so we talked a lot about this. And an interesting note regarding what Paul is saying, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Did Paul, had he ever met Philemon before? Hmm. It's possible because most likely Philemon was converted while Paul was doing ministry in Ephesus for three years. So it's possible, but they could have had a very, you know, you can convert through the preaching of another person and not personally have much of a relationship with the guy. So it's very possible that that is the case. But I think one of our clues is verse 7. I've derived joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Not like you've done this for me, like because I hear of how you've done it for others. That indicates to me that he's got, they're not like buddy-buddy with one another. Um, so they may have met during his time in Ephesus, but he's writing in the early 60s now. It's been several years since Ephesus. They haven't been close. They haven't been in contact. All of his information is coming from other people. And yet, every day he's praying for him, or at least constantly. Uh, always, I remember you in my prayers. And he speaks that way to the other churches too. He's always remembering them. And so that is what we uh, zoomed in on last week, is that idea that as Christians, we should be so regular in our prayers for one another, uh, and how that is characteristic of a believer. Okay. So verse 4 is also the anchor of this section. All of 5, 6, and 7 refer back to 4. If you look at the end of 4 and then connect it to the other verses, it flows pretty seamlessly. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. 5, because I hear of your love. That makes sense. So he's giving the reason as to why he is thanking God. Now let's get rid of 5 and just go into 6. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith... So I remember you in my prayers, and this is what I'm praying for when I'm praying for you. And now get rid of those and just do verse 7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, for I have derived much joy. Now he's back to uh, motivation again. I've derived joy because of what you have done. That's why I'm praying for you. That's why I'm doing this. So 4 is the anchor. It all goes back to verse 4 in both structure and content. Verse 5 is talking about why Paul is th constantly thanking God when he prays for Philemon. He hears of the love and faith that Philemon has to the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So when we're praying for each other, one of the first things that we should be doing is thanking the Lord for the love and faith that they have. And we should genuinely be thankful. We're not alone. There's other believers out there. Now I know Christianity has been on somewhat of a decline in the West. And by decline, I mean there was a whole lot of nominals, and now it's not very popular to say you're a Christian like it used to be. So we've lost a lot of nominal Christians. But there's, it's still an amazing thing when we as believers find that there's other believers. You have an instant connection with them, and that should be enough to thank God right then and there. I thank my God that you 
have love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and the saints. If you don't know what to pray when you pray for other people, I just don't know what to pray for you for. Just thank God for their faith and for their love. You can start there. The Lord redeemed them. He's redeemed you. That's a good place to start. So verse 5 is why he's thanking God. Verse 6 is the content of the prayers. What is he praying all the time? He's praying that the sharing of the faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's for us for the sake of Christ. Does anybody have a version of the Bible that's different than the ESV or the RSV? Do you have like a King James or an NIV in the house? Oh, we do over there. What do you, which one do you got? And no, that's what, that actually helps my purposes. Can you read verses six and uh, five and six? Yeah. Listen to this, ESV readers. <laughs> I have an ESV too, and you brought this one there. Because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. That's kind of different. And that's what I'm going to get to. Thank you, Eric. There are translational issues in the, some of these verses. And it's a bit of a project in getting the right meaning, choosing the right understanding of the words from the Greek to the English. Um, and so we'll get into that. Thank, I'm glad somebody here has an NIV. Uh, judge, do judge him, though. Um, point three. Uh, we, we already talked about that last week. Imitating Paul's model of prayer. So, Paul merely hears of Philemon's love and faith. Verse 5. Now, as Eric read, it's, they frame it a little bit differently in the NIV. And they're not doing this because the text says something different than the ESV has. it. The ESV has the more literal translation of the words. The NIV and some other translations are changing it because they're trying to get you into the right understanding of what, what Paul is saying. They're, they're rearranging it to try to help you. But that's not the way Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it the way that it is here in the ESV, which is love and faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, that's awkward for some people the first time you read it. He has love and faith for Jesus and the saints. Are we supposed to love Jesus? Are we supposed to love the saints? Are we supposed to have faith in Jesus? Are we supposed to have faith in the saints? Ooh. We're supposed to have faith in Christ. We're not saved or helped by our faith in the saints. So that's kind of, uh, that's, that's a little bit interesting. What is Paul talking about there? Like, we're not supposed to have faith in the saints. And so, because of that reason, a lot of scholars have seen, uh, I love the intersection of ideas, an A-B-B-A chiasm. If you go back to all of our chiasm talks, this is where it might come in handy. A, I hear of your love and of the faith, that's B, B is faith, that you have toward the Lord Jesus, B, and for the saints, A. So he's not saying says these scholars, that he that Philemon has love and faith towards Jesus and the saints, but rather he has love for the saints, faith for Jesus. Does that make sense? So there's a basic chiasm there. Now, I'm a chiasm guy. I love them. I think they're intentionally in Scripture. I think we can learn a lot from these structural patterns. I do not think there is a chiasm here. 
solves the issue of thinking that we are supposed to have this unlocked faith towards the saints. No, we are not supposed to have that. This is true. However, faith does not always and does not have to mean that specific gift of faith that God gives, which unlocks us to then be believers and have our sins forgiven. That's not the only understanding of faith. Paul writes it as love and faith for Jesus and the saints. We have to work with that. And when I, we even have expressions in our English. If I'm telling you, if I tell Yvonne, uh, just something I want him to keep private. It would make a lot of sense for me to ask him to keep faith with what I've told him. Like that doesn't even strike us as, as odd. I want him to keep faith to what I have said, which means what? Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. I trust you. Yeah, I want you to be faithful to what I have now said. You, Yvonne would be breaking faith if he went and then shared that with people I did not authorize him to share that with. We have this idea also in our marriages. We are to be what as husband and wife? Faithful. Faithful. So we already use the word faith in a way that is not always that specific regenerative gift where we're convicted of our sin and we come to the Lord. Yes, the Bible's full of that faith alone and Christ alone, grace alone, all of that. Yep. But that's not the only way that faith is understood. Faith actually comes from the idea of faithfulness. So when we talk about having faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus is reliable because God is truly faithful all of the time. If God's not faithful, we don't have an effective faith. And that's what Paul's concerned with, is having an effective faith. But... He is also talking about just this idea of being faithful, being loyal. That's the other word that this invokes, our loyalty to one another. We are to be faithful in our attendance to church, which is we are loyal churchgoers. It's not the same thing. Words don't have to mean a, the exact same thing all of the time. And that is an important thing in this letter when we get to this idea of sharing of the faith. Because that comes from a Greek word, koinonia, which has like four different primary ways to translate it. And the translators have to decide in the context which one is Paul using here. Get to that in a minute. But in verse 5, Paul is hearing of Philemon's love and faith and I'm convinced that uh, he is talking about faith in the saints in the idea of faithfulness and loyalty. Philemon has been loyal to the saints. He's been faithful. He's been true. That makes a lot of sense with the context of this letter. Because his request is all about, I want you to show that faithfulness now to another man. The guy who you didn't think was in the house of faith... See how I'm using that word already in this sentence in another way. He's in the house, uh, Onesimus is in the house of faith too, and I want you to be faithful to him. Like th- it's all about being effective in your faith. And so I do think he is commending him for his faithfulness to the saints, his loyalty to the saints. And Paul hears of this, and that's enough for him to get joy and comfort, verse 7. I've derived joy and comfort from your love. And that's not love for Paul, that's love for others. And that is enough for him to rejoice. And it reminds us that when one part of the body does well, it frequently affects the other parts positively. When one member of your household is 
mopey and upset and gives attitude and is disobedient and is lying, has a bad attitude. Does that affect other people in the house? Oh, of course it does. When dad comes home and he's in a mood, rough day, doesn't want to talk to the wife, leave, leave me alone for a bit. Uh, kid, ugh, I, need just, I need to be by myself and you're just, you're just all up in yourself and you ignore your family and all this. Does that impact the rest of the house? Of course it does. When dad comes home and mom is snappy, mom wants everything done exactly her way, she's got a bucket load of things to unload onto him. Is that going to affect the house? You know it will. These are things that, uh, that are built in. We are, we're connected. This is how we are as people. When one goes off, it affects other things. And when one does well, it affects the others as well. When dad comes home and he's, he's coming home responsibly, he's got a smile on his face, so thanks, thanks his wife, he's in a good attitude, thank you for taking care of the kids today. Just what... Just he's got that presence, that aura around him. Is that going to affect her in a positive way? Oh yeah. Same thing, he comes home, wife's got a smile on her face, gives him a hug. Thank you for working hard for us. We appreciate you. That's gonna do wonders for him. When one part does well, it affects everybody else. This is true in the house of faith as well. When your pastors are faithfully teaching the word of God. They're doing it with joy. And it's not like a burden for them to do it, but they're joyfully preaching the word of God and teaching you. You can see it in them, how much life they derive from the scriptures. And it's obvious that they're in prayer. It's obvious that they care about you. They show up to, to your family's funerals, your weddings. They, they're there when they answer your calls. Then we have a really effective faithfulness coming into our church circles. It affects the whole body. And this isn't just in the grand, in, in the bigger uh, things as well. I think of my own, my own physical body here. I have patellar tendonitis in this knee right here. Now, patellar, the patellar tendon is what's connecting this and this, and that tendon got inflamed when I was in high school. I was doing a really inadvisable badminton training exercise from a coach who should not have told us to do what he told us to do. And I essentially hyperextended it and it was inflamed, it's been inflamed ever since then. Now tendonitis, if you know anything, if you overwork it, the pain comes back, but otherwise it can be, you can be stable. But if I play basketball and I'm jumping around, my knee is going to get inflamed. And I went to the doctor and I said, doctor, my knee hurts. And the doctor did his stuff and he's like, yep, tell her tendonitis or jumper's knee, they call it. And he, what he did not say to me is, here's knee exercises for you. Uh, or just baby it. Or wrap something around it. He said, you need to be building up the muscles around it. So when your knee is bad, you are going to overcompensate. You're gonna move more onto your left, which is gonna shift everything in your body to be focused more on the left-hand side, which is now going to put too much pressure on the left, and that's not good. So, you're gonna to need to continue to be straight. Don't baby this thing, but be working out the muscles around it. Don't fear doing squats. You might think that's gonna hurt your knee in the moment, but it's building up the muscles around so that it actually is relieving the pressure on the tendon. It's essentially what the doctor was telling me. And I followed his advice, and it has been excellent advice. The muscles around my leg and my hips have been built up, and that take, takes pressure off of the tendon that's right there. The point being, when one part of the body it affects the rest of the body. I was going to tilt my whole disposition left 
if I didn't do what the doctor told me to do. And I did it. My posture is good. My knee feels great 98% of the time. It can still get inflamed if I overwork it, but one part affects the rest of the body. And when we do well, that also affects the parts that aren't doing so well. We're designed that way. Um, we already did point five and six, so we are on page 16 of our notes. So that's, that's a bit on verse five. Verse six has some translational issues too, and that was the koinonia idea. What is the faith, or what is the koinonia of the faith in which Paul is praying becomes effective? And that word effective is not in the NIV either. They use different words there. The idea that's behind this sentence is uncertain for some scholars. Um, it is my opinion that the ESV has the right words as long as we are understanding those words the right way. So they have interpreted uh, koinonia here as sharing of your faith. Now, when we think of sharing of our faith, what does that make you think of immediately? What does it mean to be sharing your faith? Witnessing in the gospel. Yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's one thing that we in the English, when we hear sharing the faith, that's what we think of. And that's not what he's actually talking about. That's where the issue kind of comes in. Uh, they're interpreting that, or they're translating koinonia as sharing, and that is one of the legitimate translations. But that word is later on in this letter as well. He uses the word in 17. So if you consider me your partner, that's another time that it comes up. Uh, this idea of partnering, that's koinonia. So they, they use the word partner there. Is that what he's supposed to be saying here as well? I pray that the partnering of your faith, or if we're part, uh, that doesn't sound like it's correct. Another one is in 1 Corinthians, I missed the one there in your notes, but 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, he's going to use that word again, and I'll read it here. Uh, Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the koinonia of his Son, the fellowship. This word can mean different things. There's a range of meaning, and we have to use the context to, to get at what specific way Paul means this word to be translated. So, given the context here, this has nothing to do with sharing the gospel, with witnessing. Uh, Philemon is not supposed to convert Onesimus. Paul's not trying to convert Philemon. These are all believers talking here. Now, Philemon didn't know that Onesimus was converted. He didn't know until he was standing right in front of him and he's reading this letter. And that's the context. Onesimus is right there in front of him. Philemon's reading it, wondering if he should. Well, who knows what he's wondering what he could do. So the sharing of the faith, then, that he's talking about isn't evangelism, but it's the idea that we are sharing in the faith. Note the emphasis there. We are partaking together out of one source. I, this isn't a perfect analogy. None is. But if you have a pizza, we are sharing in the pizza. I'm not giving away my pizza, but we're all sharing in it. That's kind of what's going on here. We're all in the faith. 
we are partner, partaking together of the same source, the same spirit, the same Lord, the one baptism, the one love, all of that type of stuff. We're all part, coming back to that same well of the waters that, that, that never run dry. That's more the idea, which makes sense for the context of the letter. He wants him to be a consistent Christian. You have a witness. I'm not going to ask you to share the gospel with Onesimus. I'm going to ask you to prove it by your actions. We share in this faith. Now show faithfulness to him. Because he shares in it too. We are partakers together. So that's kind of the idea. He wants him to mutually share in this faith. Because that's the way that it becomes effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is for, in us for the sake of Christ. Effective. We are meant to be in an effective state in our Christianity. Have you met Christians who claim the name of Christ and they listen to the same music the world listens to? They use the same language that the world uses. They go to the same uh, boisterous events that the world goes to. They partake in the same debauchery that the world partakes in. But they'll claim the name of Christ. They don't go to church. They don't seem to pray. They have nothing nice to say about other people. What kind of faith would you call that? Let's call it the way that James 2 talks about it. A dead faith. Our faith is obvious through our good works. And when a Christian isn't living like a Christian, there is the fear there that it is a dead faith, that they are a dead branch that's going to be cut off from the olive tree. And so that's symbolism from Romans. But we are supposed to have an effective faith. The witness of your life is more than just, I share the gospel with my classmates. It's, do you serve them? Do you challenge them towards godliness? Are you available to help them when you can? What is your Christian lifestyle witness? Now, I'm not a proponent of lifestyle evangelism where we never get to preaching, the, where we never actually talk about sin, talk about grace, talk about how we are guilty before God. Oh, yeah, you, I, I don't believe this whole preach the gospel and when necessary use words. That's, that's bunk. We use words all the time. We are people of the word. But we are supposed to have an effective faith. And that's what Paul is praying for. He needs, he's asking for Philemon to have greater and greater effectiveness in the faith. So that's one of the ideas going back to verse 4. I thank God when I remember you in my prayers because I want your faith to be more effective than it already is. It already is effective. Remember verse 7? Paul has already got personal joy and comfort. And it's because Philemon's been so effective. He's been so faithful and loyal and loving to God's people, to the church, which all of us should be. We're all supposed to be loving and faithful towards each other in the church. And Philemon's done it. And yet he wants him to be more effective. I'm gonna, I have a guy standing right in front of you, and I'm going to ask you to show it again. This is going to be your biggest challenge yet. Will you show love and faithfulness to the guy who spurned you? The guy who stole from you, who ran away from you, probably besmirched his name. All kinds of things. So he's going to ask him to show an effective witness to him, to the guy who burned him. And this is how we get every good thing. Uh, the every good thing 
uh, for the, in the sake of Christ, that's referring to the direction to and glory of Christ. We become effective in our faith. Now, because, I brought up this idea earlier, because believers mutually partake in the same faith and the same spirit, we are objectively given the gifts. I made a brief note on this last week, and I want to spend the rest of the time basically talking about this. But in, if you turn to, I'll sh we'll start in 1 Corinthians 12, just to show you the proof text for this. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts, that is Paul. And before he gets into describing the different gifts that the Spirit gives out, and before we get into cessationism debates, uh, verse 4 of chapter 12, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's got different gifts, but the Spirit is in every believer. Everyone whom the Lord has saved has the Holy Spirit in them. All, oh, but they're, they're Methodists. Oh, if God has saved them, the Holy Spirit's in them, as He is in you. And because we have the same Spirit, um, there are certain things that come with the Spirit. And that, what I'm referring to, is Galatians chapter 5. This is worth turning to. You know what this is. You've heard it before. Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 5, he's going to talk about some of the things that come when you get the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When the Holy Spirit comes, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what comes out of the Spirit. There is no such thing as somebody who has the Holy Spirit and cannot have self-control. You understand? When the Holy Spirit's in you, you can have self-control. You struggle with sin. You cannot say, I, I'm just defeated. I cannot overcome this. I, I, in your flesh, yeah, you can't overcome it. But that's why you have the Spirit in you. Because the Spirit's in you, you objectively have self-control. Or you're a bitter person, and you make your household a living hell for those who are there. That is is not something that needs to stay that way. You have kindness. The Holy Spirit gives it to you. The point is, you are supposed to become effective in the kindness that is there. There's no such thing as a hateful Christian. No such thing as a unkind Christian. Now, we know they're unkind because they act unkind, but they have kindness in them. They are not being effective in their faith when they are not showing kindness to others. You understand? We are not people who cannot overcome sin. We can. That doesn't mean we can become sinless perfectionists. That's, that's a horrible doctrine. We will struggle with sin. We are in the flesh. Yep. But we also have a new nature. And in our new nature, you objectively have faithfulness in you. Christians are faithful people. 
There's no way that you can just not be faithful to the people who you have made commitments to. Oh, yes, you can. You'll make excuses to not be. You'll find sinful ways to get out of it. But the Spirit's objectively given you these things. And the implications for this are massive. Uh, even the idea, one thing, if you ask people, what do you struggle with? What, uh, a, lot of things, a lot of things that people say is patience. A lot of people struggle with patience. I'm not a very patient person. And I think that's a big product of our society, too. Everything's so fast and flashy and right now, joy and in instant happiness. Uh, anything you want, you can just click it on your computer and you get it. We're in an age of quick pleasures. And that, no doubt, is going to try our patience. And not only is there that, but because of the nature of social media, everybody who thinks they have a good thought can now broadcast it as though they are an authority on something. And so we can lose our patience with others who say things that they shouldn't say, and they're very unwise in what they say. There's a lot of ways that we can have our patience tried, and yet we are objectively given patience in the Spirit. It is your job and the the church's job and your brothers and sisters in Christ's job to pray and help you become effective in being a patient person. Because you can be. You can be every one of those things. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The only reason you're not is because of your sin. Every single Christian can have those things and does have those things. They are objectively in you. I am belaboring this point because it is very significant. The other thing we are given is knowledge. Now, and he, and he says that, maybe effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. We are a people of statements, doctrine, facts, confessions. We are a people of dogmatics. We make a truth statement. We have a philosophy. We are telling people to come to a certain worldview. It's, it's not the best word for it. Well, we're telling them to die to themselves and take up the person of Christ. To a lot of people in the world, they see that as a different philosophy, one of many. Think of Mars Hill, the, the, to the unknown God. There's lots of different gods. Oh, and there, must, there could be another one that we don't know about. This is another philosophy. We, we are people of truth, and we make statements. And I'm going to use the word knowledge for that. We are a people who want to grow in knowledge, just like we want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. But because of the Spirit, because you objectively have Him in you, you are given knowledge already. There's no such thing as a dumb Christian. And by that, I mean they can act very dumb. Yes, they can. But they legitimately can grow in knowledge. There is knowledge that can grow because of the Spirit. Now, I make, of course, we have to make exceptions for those who, have, who are born or, or acquire disabilities of some kind in their own natural knowledge. They can be stunted for various reasons. But through the Spirit, He can give us an objective growth of knowledge of the Lord. And I think for those with disabilities, it looks a little bit different. But for those who don't have those, which is most of us, you do have the ability to grow in knowledge. And what I do in this class is I talk about things that are not the most simple, and I know that. I also don't want this to feel like seminary. I'm trying not to, you know, I'm trying to keep it as um, 
I have to make decisions about how I teach it, but what I am teaching is something that's going to challenge you, and that is on purpose. I am not going to bring this stuff too low down. I want you to come higher in your knowledge. That Because that's another way that Paul says our faith becomes effective, is by the growth of your knowledge. Christians do not hate knowledge. Christians pursue knowledge. We want it. Christ is all wisdom. He's the wisdom of God incarnate, is what it says in, in 1 Corinthians again. You want wisdom? You want knowledge? It's in the Lord. Now, another application of this is we have a lot of terms in Christianity. Sanctification, glorification, election, predestination. We got all these big words and terms and and then you can throw in other, like Calvinism, and we're not four-point Calvinists, we're five-point Calvinists. You know, we got all these different ways to show our knowledge, and all these different terms, we can think, I just don't want to know all these terms. Like, just, give it, just say God saves people, God calls people, you don't need the, the election, sovereignty, like, we don't need all these big words. Like, it's like I'm learning a new language. Like, just talk to me in plain English. There's something about language that our forefathers knew well, the power of it to be precise in what we're saying. We need to be precise in what we're saying. Love God, love others. Okay, I can drive a bus through the meanings of those types of things. We gotta be precise of what it means to love God. Loving God means you obey his commands. What is loving my neighbor? It's the 10 commandments, doing the, doing the 10 commandments for one another. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. So we are people who desire knowledge, are given knowledge. And this also means that I'm not ever going to dumb down the language of theological concepts. And I mean, if we think about the different words that we learn and how it can be so overwhelming, when you got a new iPhone, you had to learn a whole new language of how an iPhone works. Right? We have all these new terms that come with smartphones and iPads and PCs and Macs. You le you'll learn a new digital language so that you can work with your device. You, you can't learn a few extra words of doctrine that our forefathers bled for. No, we're people of knowledge. We are to grow in our knowledge. And so I reject that we need to get away from kind of the sophisticated way of understanding our faith, certainly there's a simplicity to it. Anyone can understand Christianity. There's a level in which anyone can understand it. And yet you can continue to study it for the rest of your life because your knowledge is supposed to become effective. And the Lord's going to keep on enabling effectiveness in us. And so there's always more we can know and further we can go. Any comments on that, by the way, before I continue and get to the end here? Yeah, Dill. <coughs> When you have a word to describe something, it suddenly becomes much more real than if you have to use like several sentences. Mm -hmm. it, it fits better in our brain because it's uh, chunky. It's, it helps you to think better once you learn the words. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite songs is called How Can I Keep From Singing? I actually uh, mentioned it in one of my sermons here on a Sunday morning. Uh, one of the verses goes like this. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart. A fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? All things are mine because I am his. That idea is what Paul is kind of getting at. All things are yours if you're in Christ. Knowledge, it's all yours. Open a book. Listen to a podcast. Listen to a sermon. 
you can grow in knowledge. You're not dumb. It's not like you can't learn. You can. Because of the Spirit, you can. You struggle with self-control. You struggle with sin. All things are yours if you're in Christ. You can gain self-control. You can gain peace in your heart. You can be content. You can be joyful. You walk around with no joy in your heart. Joy is there. It just needs to come out. You need to be effective in your joy, but it's already there. Because the Spirit's there. All these different things. All things are yours if you are in Christ. And this also corresponds with the prodigal son, which looms large as a theme and as an antitype and or as an archetype in here. Think of the prodigal son, the older brother. What does he what does the older brother complain about? Remember in the prodigal son story, what's he complaining about? He gets jealous, but why? What? He did all the right things and he still doesn't get what Yeah. This son of yours went and wasted everything, comes back and you kill the fattened calf for him. I've been with you all this time and you never did that for me. And what does the father say to him? Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. It's all here. What's mine is yours. You're a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit's yours. Knowledge is yours. It's all there. Don't complain that other people have it more put together than you. It's all yours. It's all there. Yeah, Ryan. Question then. Um, if, if we notice a believer, someone who uh, claims to be a believer isn't growing uh, in their faith, does not want, doesn't seem to want to acquire knowledge or wisdom, truth more, they kind of, they're real happy at the bare basics. It seems to us, maybe, right, that they just don't want to grow. They've been at that same thing for 50 years of their life. Um, we could assume, on the one hand, that they have the ability to grow, so they're choosing not to. However, we also believe in the, the sanctification process where the Lord is in charge of our sanctification. How does that kind of hmm. go together there? Anybody have any thoughts on what Ryan has said? Those who just seem to not grow. Lord's in charge of sanctification. <coughs> They're not growing. What do you do with that? <coughs> That's a toughie. Yeah, I think you qualified it pretty well, is that we can be in different stages, and for some people it's going to take 20 years to get a lesson that other people learn <coughs> in one year. And it's a sad thing because the older are supposed to be more mature and more knowledgeable than the younger. And that's not always the case. You can even think of some people who are in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and it's like they act like they never graduated high school. It's sad. But we're in a fallen world and that happens. Can they still be Christians? I mean, Paul talked to believers like, you should be on solid food and you're still on milk. So clearly in Paul's day already, there's Christians who are just babies still in the faith. But they're old. Like they, should be, they should be X, Y, or Z, but they're not. But they're still in the faith. He's still calling them brothers. So this is why we've got to pray that we become effective. You see somebody who's not growing. I mean, it could be the James 2. It could be a dead faith, which is not faith at all. Or it could be that they're just one of those believers who won't grow much. But they could still be in the faith, I think. He says, if you, you, could be on, you could be on baby milk. If you're on baby milk, you're still in the spirit. 
those are my initial thoughts on that. Final point I'll say before we close. Um, I'll, I'll read that last line there in uh, point eight. For the sake of Christ, uh, if you do not feel like you have joy, it is objectively there for the sake of Christ, along with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And his final words in verse 7, before he begins his request, is that he has derived much joy and comfort from his love. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through him. He's about to begin his request. But in reality, he's already been getting into the, like, he's been priming him, sort of, in all of this. It's not a psychological trick, but his request began from the moment he opened this letter. But he's going to formally bring it up in verse 8. Uh, which is what we'll look at next time we get into this book. Um, and the last thing is when he talks about how the hearts of the saints have been refreshed, the Greek word splagna. Uh, pronounce it for me, please. That's a tough word. Thank you. Uh, that word literally means like your bowels, your internal organs, your, your innards. Like, ah, like it, it's just bursting out of me how much uh, love and joy that I have received and comfort from you. The hearts of the saints, like you have been, you've comforted their bowels, which is a weird thing to think. Uh, very. Correct. Good point. So we, we tame it a little bit when we say hearts of the saints. But the idea is a lot more explicit than that. And he's going to bring up that word uh, later on in this letter too. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Any, uh, any final comment before we close? It is 1018. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. I thank you that we can learn from them. I thank you that we have the Spirit. And because of the Spirit... You have given us all things that we need. You've given us knowledge and you've given us the fruit of the Spirit. Let us be made effective partakers of the gospel. That we could share in the faith with our brothers and sisters. That we would have a dynamic faith and not a static one. That we would grow in the areas in which we are weak. That we may be effective. I thank you that you give us this Spirit. Would you prepare our hearts now for worship. Amen.